Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. The total number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. now stands at more than 9 million. That's the bad news. Now, as doctors continue to work on ways of treating the virus, mortality rates have improved since the start of the pandemic. That's the good news. But with this latest surge, deaths are climbing again, and hospitalizations are rising in almost every state. Again, more bad news. So how prepared are hospitals in Illinois and our region? Is there a chance they'll be overrun like we feared early on? In a few minutes, we'll hear from folks working on the front lines of hospitals in the Chicago area. But first, WBEC public health reporter Kristen Schorsch is with us. Kristen, where are the new cases in Illinois coming from? The new cases are coming everywhere. For example, in Chicago, there's not one outbreak, but there is a lot of community spread. So people are getting it somewhere in the community and bringing it home. If you look on a map of the city, the highest rates of COVID are on the southwest side. So, for example, there's a pocket with, you know, the, in neighborhoods like McKinley Park, Brighton Park, South Lawndale, one in 16 people have tested positive for the virus wow. there. You know, they've got a lot of essential workers who live in the communities, lots of people who live in multiple generations under the same roof. People can look up a lot of these types of stats on the city's COVID dashboard. Uh, all 11 health regions of Illinois will be under tighter restrictions starting on Wednesday. Uh, which means no indoor dining and bars uh, and restaurants and gatherings limited to 25 people. But but this is because we're getting close to that 8% threshold, right? We've been told by all the, by Governor Pritzker, but also by infectious disease experts that, that we can't get over that 8% threshold, yet here we are. Yeah, right. So they look at a lot of different health metrics. They look at that threshold, the percent of people testing positive for the virus. They look at hospitalizations, how full are our hospitals, how much capacity they have. Um, you know, one thing, though, that I've been following pretty closely and that's been pretty controversial is that the state is still not showing, though, in a big comprehensive way where all these cases are originating. Mm. So where are they starting? Like, is your favorite pizza place or your coffee shop, right. is there COVID there, right? Is there an outbreak? You know, we've seen the last you know week or two tons of stories in the news about how the ban on restaurants and bars you know, the industry and some state lawmakers are asking for proof that they're spreading the virus. We're just not getting a lot of information on that. Um, I mean, research shows that these, you know, restaurants and bars are a high-risk place. People are taking their masks off to eat and drink and socialize. But still, there's kind of that big clamoring of wanting more details to really understand, like, where is COVID happening? One of the things they always talk about is contact tracing. And then there's a story out Mm -hmm. saying that Illinois and Cook County way behind on contact tracing. I mean, think about this. We're adding thousands of new cases every day. But contact tracing is still largely ramping up around the state. It's important to have tracing because this is a key way you, key way you find outbreaks. You find out by interviewing people who get sick, where they got sick, who else they came into contact with. And the state mostly relies on local health departments to do this type of tracing. 
But the state won't say, the city of Chicago won't say, they won't say how much tracing they've actually done. You know, of all these cases, how many of you actually closed out? What do you know? I had an interesting interview last week with the Cook County Public Health Department, and they told me the counties only done a fraction of tracing. I mean, you know, they cover mostly suburban Cook County, so that's, you know, 700 square miles. They were like, we're not even tracing old outbreaks because this just, it's too much. The volume's too great. So we're just trying to keep tabs on new ones. They basically said keeping up with contact tracing at this point is almost impossible. Now, the state plans to release numbers on contact tracing soon, but I hear that many local health departments are really nervous because their numbers are going to look pretty bad. That's really a, a big story that, that doesn't get told as much. I'm glad to see that happening because it really comes down to resources. If you're asking these municipalities mm-hmm. to do it at local public health departments, I can't understand how they have the money to be able to dedicate those resources to that. Uh, that's where we need the federal government and others to step in. But I just don't understand how, how the system has not figured that out up to now. And that's that's perplexing as a, as a resident here. They're getting the money trickled down from the state, but it's, I mean, I think there are big questions about hiring. Why are we still hiring and not having all that ramped up seven months into the pandemic? Um, you know, these are a lot of questions that, um, you know, public health officials are not exactly answering. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not even providing how much contact tracing you've done, I think, raises a lot of questions. When we talk about hospitalization, that's really what we need to focus on, because uh, the impact on hospitals and health system is in Chicago and the reason... What do we know about it? Are they prepared to respond? Are they dealing with the same things they dealt with back in April and May? Or have we learned so much since that point that that we're ready for a second surge? Well, they've learned a lot of lessons about how to treat patients, right? What works, what doesn't, what medications are helpful, what may be putting patients in certain positions so that they don't have to get on a ventilator, which is like a life-saving breathing machine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they they need to be stocking up on protective gear like masks and gowns so that, you know, their their own workers don't get sick and then spread the virus. During the first surge, this was really expensive because every hospital around the world was competing for the same things. The issue that hospitals have right now is that they lost a lot of money during that first surge. Mm -hmm. They had to stop elective surgeries, and that's a big way they make money, like a hip replacement. They just stopped having people come in for doctor's appointments. They basically put that all virtually. So the problem now is, you know, during the second surge, how much are hospitals going to have to do that again to stop doing things to free up space for COVID patients? So I think that's something that's definitely going to be following, and I hope that the folks you have coming out are going to talk about. Yeah. It's a developing story, and, and I think it's time we have you on every day. <laughs> WBZ <laughs> Public Health Reporter, Kristen Schorsch. Uh, Kristen, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, I want to bring another voice in. So we want to talk to some of the hospitals and hospital systems in the region. Let's start with Dr. Nikila Javadi. She's a chief clinical officer of Loretto Hospital in the Austin neighborhood on Chicago's west side. Dr. Javadi, welcome to Reset. Hi, thanks for having me. So first up, give us some context on the demographics of the of the patients that Loretto serves. So Loretto is a safety dead hospital on the west side of Chicago um, in the Austin neighborhood, as you just said, which is the second largest neighborhood in the city of Chicago. It is primarily, largely um, African-American population. Surrounding communities include Berwyn, Cicero, Lawndale, which have a mix of other minority populations, too. So in general, I would say that we are very, very concentrated in a minority population area, which, as you know, has seen a large share of the COVID cases in Illinois. Yeah. So what's what has the biggest challenge been during a pandemic as a safety net hospital? 
uh, money. <laughs> to be completely honest, resources, supply chain, money. When we first started, this was a, it's kind of a surprise. Uh, obviously, the federal government was playing it down. The state was trying to catch up. And the safety net hospitals were just left largely on their own to source their own PPE, to figure out how to make our rooms safer, uh, how to how to do the isolation procedures appropriately. Nobody was able to get those, you know, HEPA filters uh, or any of those things that require filtration of the air. Uh, our manufacturers, our suppliers were saying, you know, months out. So we, we had to come up with ingenious ways to make sure our patients in our population were safe, considering also that um, they don't generally have access to healthcare. So, you know, our ED got overwhelmed. We had to figure out space very, very quickly, breathing machines very quickly. Uh, we made some phone calls to other partner hospitals, but they themselves were dealing with Same all thing, of that. Right, so. Right. Yeah. So an internal COVID task force was all the resources we had. The city tried. I mean, in the beginning, we had phone calls every single day while all of us were scrambling to figure it out. But the, the difference, I think, with the safety net hospitals versus everybody else, we had no stockpile, no money, because safety net hospitals operate on very, very thin margins. And the reason is that 90% of our revenue, especially for Loretto, comes from Medicaid. And Illinois is the worst payer for Medicaid in the entire country. So you combine that with, you know, people arguing that, hey, why didn't you have things stockpiled? Why weren't you ready for a pandemic? How could we have been? Right. With that sort of resources. Well, as, as you learn, Dr. Javadi, when you when you have that happen at the beginning of a pandemic and then the summer kind of levels out and now we come back to the to the winter months uh, with a second surge upon us. Are you able to fix some of the things that that at the the early days plagued Loretto or, or because of the influx of patients that are coming your way? Uh, you have the similar similar issues that you had back at the beginning. Well, I think the city of Chicago did do a good job um, in the summer of making sure our positivity rate was less than 5%, which gave us a little bit of a reprieve to be able to stockpile our PPE. We have spent $2.7 million on PPE for our hospital alone, $1.5 million on temporary help. And it, like you said, that was just during the first surge in the summer. So coming up, We've learned a few lessons, absolutely. We are a little bit more prepared, as um, Kristen was saying, about treatment options. We know isolation procedures better. Contact tracing doesn't exist. So there's a mix of lessons that have learned. Uh, we have learned. We definitely are ramping up again in terms of our COVID task force meetings, our staff temporary help situations, trying to scramble to make sure that our agency workers or who we, you know, temporary help that we hire are also not getting sick. Right. Because that's another part. How do we keep our essential workers from getting sick when it's a community spread situation? So it's not only that they are exposed in the hospital, which, okay, they're wearing PPE, so there's probably a little bit of a less risk. But then out in the community, like you said, when they go to Starbucks, right. how do we know that they're not getting it and bringing it back in? As we see the surge happening and the positivity rate going up and we see record numbers of cases of COVID-19, what does that look like at Loretto? We follow the pattern of the city of Chicago. When the city of Chicago goes down, less hospitalizations. As soon as the city of Chicago's positivity rate goes up, higher hospitalizations. And also for us, a unique part of this is that we have a lot of patients who are homeless or don't have situations where they can isolate at home. So let's say they are don't technically require a breathing machine. They still need to stay inside an isolation room in our hospital, which we are seeing rise, which our beds are getting fuller. And then we have to start relying on other hospitals to possibly accept patients from us, which 
is a very difficult thing to do because there is no such network that is built already. It's almost a word of mouth sort of, you know, pick up the phone and let's see if they'll take a patient. So our beds are definitely getting fuller. We have to isolate. We had a 20-year-old with mental health issues. His father had cancer. He was homeless. So he could not stay with his father who had lung cancer and 10 days in our hospital for isolation, which we got denied on from the insurance company. So both those things combined, we are definitely seeing a strain on our resources. Dr. Nikila Javadi is a chief clinical officer of Loretto Hospital on Chicago's West Side. Dr. Javadi, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, turning now to a hospital system on the north side and in the northwest suburb, Dr. Ernest Wong is chief of emergency medicine at North Shore University Health System and joins us now. Dr. Wong, welcome back to Reset. Justin, thanks a lot. So when we spoke to you in March, there were a total of like 5,000 cases, maybe 70 deaths in Illinois. That's the last time we spoke. Now we're at what, 417,000 cases, almost 10,000 deaths reported since the start of the pandemic. Did you expect things to look the way they do right now? Well, you know, let's just pause and uh, think about those numbers, Justin, and what Kristen detailed earlier. Never in my wildest nightmares did I think we would be in this situation in this country eight months in. But here we are. And if we don't get our act together and work together as a community, a city, a state, and a country, as Dr. Fauci says, we're in for a whole lot of hurt this winter. Well, we just heard from Loretto Hospital talking about uh, the, the challenges that safety net hospitals face during the pandemic, and, and they're seeing a rise in, in hospital hospitalizations, and, and their beds are, are getting full up. How's North Shore doing? Our systems all have challenges, and I applaud Dr. Giovanni for the, the work that they're doing there. It's, it's heroic. But the good news is we've learned a lot from our previous experience this past March. And so we've, we're doing a lot of things to prepare for this coming wave. And we already are doing that. We have a pandemic playbook that we created over the summer. And we look at metrics regarding space, staff, supplies, and the types of patients coming in. We have been working uh, intensely to get PPE stockpiled. And, you know, as an emergency physician, as a healthcare worker, I'm telling you, the supply chain people are our heroes because they're the ones that keep us safe. So from the standpoint of our system, we have a plan and we are already mobilizing it because our numbers are higher than the state. We, this past week, we are now at 25% positivity rate um, on our daily calls. And we were at 16% last week. And our catchment area goes from the north side of the city uh, with Swedish all the way up to the border of Wisconsin. So we have a, a wide variety of uh, pockets and hotspots that uh, we have to um, be prepared for. When you're dealing with that kind of uh, an increase, what happens? I mean, do you, do you, you put a plan in place? Are you, are you executing that plan? Is that the idea right now that you took the months and, and, and you know, prepared yourself and, and put the whole network on, on a plan? Is that being executed? Is that what's happening right now? Yes, we are doing that literally every day as we speak. We've been, we've been doing it all week and our inpatient volumes have gone from single digits up to 70 within a very short period of time. And, you know, we peaked out about 170 uh, in, the, in the first wave. So we are already doing this. And so, you know, in the emergency department, it becomes a situation with, you know, because COVID patients stay in the hospital for uh, quite a while, we are in a cycle now where we end up filling up, boarding, diuresing, or getting uh, or decompressing, getting our patients into the hospital, and then reloading and doing it again. And it's becoming 
more frequent. So our big plan is to try and increase bed capacity in a way that is safe for the patients and safe for the staff. And how do you do that? How do you increase bed capacity when you're a brick-and-mortar healthcare system? We have uh, a COVID uh, hospital plan. So Glenbrook is now our designated COVID hospital for our system, and we transfer all of our COVID patients there. And we have uh, strategically increased the number of negative airflow rooms in the hospital. Our emergency department is entirely negative airflow, so we have more capacity now to manage ICU patients and uh, hospitalized patients uh, with COVID. And then that will free up our other uh, hospitals for non-COVID patients with just as important uh, medical problems. You know, we're talking about a, a healthcare system like North Shore, which serves so many different communities in the Chicago area. Half the battle is to prepare yourself for the influx of hospitalizations, right? The other half has to be in community outreach and education, which is usually not something that the healthcare system is designed to do. So how do you do that? How do you get to the next level of going to the community and dealing with education and trying to get people to stop having these parties, whatever it might be, as well as doing the function of, of being a hospital for communities? That's a great question. And, and I'm so proud of what North Shore has done with respect to this because community connections are the key. And we know now that the significant amount of spread begins in the home. And how do we get our community to partner with us to look out for their health and slow the spread. So some of the things that we have done uh, are to create COVID care kits, and we've distributed 1,600 of them so far to our patients who test positive. And in that kit is a pulse oximeter, finger monitor, gloves, hand hygiene materials, and information on uh, uh, how to keep themselves safe. We've launched a patient safety ambassador program uh, that's available on our website. And uh, it's a a community partnership where you can go on, uh, commit to a safety promise. It's at northshore.org. And there are links to COVID resources and uh, other uh, uh, types of information. And so really what we're trying to do is get people to spread the word and not the virus and be partners with us because that's going to make the most sense. One of the ways that I think that we as healthcare workers now have, we have a role in the public to be uh, spokespeople and to to reach out. And so doing these types of uh, interviews is, is one way. Uh, being active in the community is another. And what I tell people is this, you know, I don't know if when you're a kid if you like to uh, pop bubble wrap, but, you know, bubble wrap, right, that comes in different sizes, small and the big ones. If you try and keep people in a small bubble, you can withstand and be more resilient if a few of those pop. You get a couple cases here, a couple cases there, the bubble wrap is still okay. You get people expanding their bubbles, all of a sudden you pop a few and the whole, uh, the whole thing uh, becomes unusable. So, you know, we talk about limiting your bubble. That's how I like to kind of talk to people about it. Keep your bubble small, limit your exposure, and uh, we'll, we'll have a better chance as a community to break the chain of transmission. That was Dr. Ernie Wong. He's the chief of emergency medicine at North Shore University Health System. Thanks to Dr. Wong and all of our guests. And thank you for listening. I'm Justin Kaufman. We'll be back with another Reset tomorrow. And Tuesday night, I'm going to be hosting WBEZ's live election coverage starting at 7 o'clock. We'll have numbers and analysis from NPR's finest and up-to-the-minute info on all the local and state races from WBEZ's award-winning reporting team. 
Don't miss WBEZ's election night coverage beginning at 7 o'clock on 91.5 FM and WBEZ.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.